huge thank you to Kim for leading us so well this morning. Uh, she said nine months ago she moved away. Uh, Kim was managing a royal bank in Nanaimo, and they spotted her talent and uh, said, we want you, and so they sent her to Victoria to manage four banks, and uh, she has been doing an incredible job, and she was just sharing this morning, it's been really intense, 12-hour days, craziness, and she said, coming back here feels like a soul-filling experience, so we are loving having you back, thank you. Well, we have been working through uh, the book of Acts since September. September 18th was our first sermon in this series. And uh, this is the longest series I've ever preached. And uh, I've enjoyed it. I hope it's been beneficial to you. And in that sermon, I read you one of our girls' favorite uh, books when they were a little kid. Uh, We are in a book uh, featuring Elephant and Piggy by Mo Willems. Uh, Now we're at the end of the series, so I'm going to read it to you again, and I think as we go through this sermon, you're going to see how all of that makes sense. All right, this is a gem of a book. It's entitled, We Are in a Book. And there's Elephant, and there's Piggy in the background. All right, here we go. Piggy. Yes, Gerald? I think someone is looking at us. Someone is looking at us. Who is looking at us? A monster? No, it is a reader. A reader is reading us. How is a reader reading us? The reader is reading these word bubbles. We are in a book. We are in a book? That is so cool! We are in a book! We're in a book! We are being read! We are being read! Oh, I have a good idea. I can make the reader say a word. You can make the reader say a word? I can. If the reader reads out loud, that is a good idea. That is a funny idea. Here I go. Banana. (laughs) Did you hear that? The reader said banana. Ah. Oh, the reader said it again. Ah. Banana. So funny. Oh. Do you want to turn before the book ends? Ends? The book ends? Yes, all book ends. When will the book end? I will look. Page 57. Page 57? It's page 46 now. Eek! Now it's page 47. This book is going too fast. I have more to give. More words, more jokes, more bananas. I just want to be read. I have a good idea. That is a good idea. Hello, will you please read us again? I hope this works. Me too. All right, it's a gem. There we go. Now, the 28th chapter of Acts. This is the final chapter in the entire book. And it brings the Apostle Paul, Luke, 
Uh, the helper that Paul's trained, Aristarchus, it brings them all the way to Rome. And we see Paul speak to the Jews of the city, then we see him under house arrest, chained up to a member of the elite Praetorian Guard all day. And then the book just stops. It doesn't feel like Acts has a proper ending. And people have puzzled over this for centuries. Why? Why does this book feel like it just chops, it just ends? And I think it's because, and we'll discover this this morning, that just like Elephant and Piggy, we are in a book. We are the characters in God's big story that he is writing. Our part will come and go, but the story continues on. That's why I've entitled the sermon, Acts 29, ours to write at the same time as God writes his big story. All right, we're going to unpack that through the sermon, but we're going to begin at verse 11 of chapter 28. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Putoli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. All right, I want to show you a picture this morning. And we're going to flip over to the next slide. There we go. There's the picture. I want you to look at it. And I want to see, hands up, how many of you can see an old woman in the picture? Perfect, four of you. That's awesome. All right, how many of you see a young woman? A lot more of you. All right, interesting. Now, I want to see if you can see both going back and forth. If you're stuck with the old woman, we're going to go to the next slide. Here we go. So she has quite a large nose. You can see her eye and then her mouth. How many of you see the old woman now? Okay. All right. A few of you are still struggling to see that. Okay, if you can see the old woman. Now we're going to flip to the young woman. And you can see she's looking away. There's her little kind of button nose, her ear, the necklace. Okay, back to the old woman. All right, the moment you can see both, the moment you can flip between images, the old woman and the young woman, that is called a paradigm shift. You're able to see something completely new. Well, you may have assumed prior to reading those verses I just read that the Christian faith came to the center of the Roman Empire, came to the capital city of Rome through the Apostle Paul coming to Rome. That would be a logical kind of normal thing. Here's the deal. You are wrong. There were Christian believers already in the city of Rome. They come out to greet and welcome Paul to their city. 
And I love this verse. It says, at the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Now, we have seen all the way through the book of Acts that the apostle Peter first and then the apostle Paul, were, they were gifted, they were dramatically called, they were intensely trained, and they are rightly called apostles. Apost, the word apostle means sent ones. And we marvel at their courage, their faith, their God-given brilliance. But that is not who first brought the life-changing message of the gospel to the heart of the Roman Empire, the big capital city of Rome. Not Peter, not Paul, but actually everyday hard-working Christian people who simply went to Rome to work and lived out their faith. Now you may think, how on earth did they get there? How were they ahead of even the Apostle Paul coming to Rome? We aren't told exactly, but way back in Acts chapter 2, at the beginning of the book of Acts, what we call Pentecost, this amazing event when the Holy Spirit came down in a visible form and it was tongues of flame above the heads of the believers. And there was thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem gathered to celebrate the Jewish feast of Pentecost. And they heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus being proclaimed in their own language. And this is what it says in Acts 2, 5 through 10. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one was hearing in their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. And so what scholars believe is that those early people came to faith in Christ. They saw these miracles. They heard the gospel. Acts chapter 2 tells us 3,000 people were baptized that day in the city of Jerusalem. And it's the thought that those people eventually went home to Rome. And they simply got back into life, started working, started sharing their faith, and people came to Christ. Now this is a really, really important point to grasp. Because all through the last 2,000 years of church history, the Christian faith grows it becomes both wider and deeper when the average Christian believer gets fired up about Jesus, honors him with their actions and their words. For 2,000 years, God has called some people to be leaders in the church. But the bottom line description of a pastor or an apostle or ministry leader is found in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. You know, when I'm out in the community and I meet somebody and they mean it in a kind way, but it always freaks me out when they say a statement like, hey, I think your church is doing some good things or I really like your church. It adds to this community. And I always correct them joyfully and say, the great news is it's not my church. 
I don't own it. It's Jesus' church. And in fact, the people that attend and serve and pray and give are the church. Now, I have a leadership role, but that role should never be about taking ministry out of anyone's hands. It should be about equipping and helping people serve and be part of the church. Now, I don't know if that's a paradigm shift for you or not this morning, but I hope that image of Christian believers in the city of Rome long before Paul ever got there, coming out, walking mile after mile, and finally getting to meet Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. And I love Paul's response. It just says he was so thankful to God. He was so encouraged. He could see that God was preparing, even in the heart of the Roman Empire, even in the capital city of Rome, God was doing some amazing things. I hope that image stays with you. All right, we're going to pick it up in verse 17, all the way down to 28. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the custom of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you. And none of our people who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are. For we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. From the law of Moses, from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. What a heart Paul has. If you've caught any of the sermons through our Acts series, you know that almost every place Paul started with the local Jewish synagogue. He, he had such a heart for his own people. Paul was Jewish, and he knew that he wanted them to come to faith. And he would go to the local synagogue, whether he was in parts of Greece or what we call Turkey today. Back then it was called Asia Minor. He would go there and he would plead with them and he would reason with them. It says here in Rome, he, he started early in the morning and went all day long. In other parts, he went for months and months trying to convince and persuade the Jewish people that the Messiah, the one they had been longing for, as it says, the hope of Israel had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
What a heart. And what did he get for all of it? Usually he got a riot, a beating, he was tossed in jail. But all throughout every single place he went, some people, some Jews did believe. And I love how he says, For this reason I have asked to see and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. And what he's really saying is, what is the hope of Israel? They're longing, they're waiting for the Messiah, the one who would come and rescue them. And Paul reasons with them from morning till night. And it says he started with the law of Moses. What is that? That's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Paul starts with the law of Moses, the one that the nation looked to as their founder. And he says all in those first five books, there's so many verses that point towards the Messiah. And let me show you how Jesus fulfilled each and every one of those promises, those prophecies. Then he moves into the prophets, all of the prophets in the first half of the Bible. He does the same thing. He'll say, look at this. This was predicted 800, 1,000, 1,200 years ago. And look, it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As an aside, can you imagine the privilege of sitting there all day watching the Apostle Paul unpack the whole Bible? What an amazing privilege. That's amazing. And he's essentially saying, folks, the whole point is it points to Jesus. And the response is very true to life. Some believe, some reject Jesus the Messiah. It says that interesting phrase, they disagreed amongst themselves. You could see them all chattering and and disagreeing. The ones who chose to believe would become a part of those early house churches in Rome that had already started to be established. Those Jews who rejected eventually would cause more riots. And we know from history that Nero, as he became emperor, finally got fed up with the Jews. And uh, there was a massive fire in Rome and he blamed it all on the Jews and the Christians fighting. Uh, It was quite a mess. But it's interesting that God never, ever forces belief, but rather gives each person on earth the gift of free choice. As Paul would later point out in his letter to the church in Rome, God already knows who's going to accept him and who's going to reject. But we as human beings, we we aren't privy to that knowledge. And part of Paul's heart is for his own people, the Jews. Despite the opposition, the stubbornness, the unbelief, here he is trying one last time. Now, Paul gives it his best shot, and when a big chunk of the crowd rejects faith in Jesus Christ, then he utters that statement in Acts 28, 28. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. And that's been true all through history. I now feel that there's over 2 billion people that claim to follow Jesus around the world. And that is exactly what Paul does for the next two years while he is under house arrest in Rome. Paul's heart is essentially, Lord Jesus, these chains and this house arrest won't stop your work. So please continue to use me 100%. Now, people generally end up in jail because they have committed a crime. That wasn't the case with the Apostle Paul. He's falsely accused of starting a riot in the temple in Jerusalem and bringing a Gentile into the inner court. 
absolutely forbidden. He was falsely accused. That never happened. But it took years and years for him to see justice. Now, at the complete opposite end of the spectrum was the New York politician William M. Tweed. This guy was a class one schmuck. He was a dirtbag. He was elected to the... Are preachers allowed to say dirtbag? I don't know. I just did. He was elected to the New York State Senate, as well as a number of city boards and commissions. And what this corrupt politician would do, he'd look around New York, he knew the city was going to continue to grow, and he'd go after land that wasn't developed yet. And he would use the city's money to put in a road. And then he'd use the city's money to bring in water. And then he'd use the city's money to lay the groundwork for sewer. And then all of a sudden, the land became more and more valuable because it's ready to be developed. And he would turn around and sell the land to developers for a big profit. So he's using the city's money to develop and he's pocketing all the profit. Well, this guy was totally corrupt. And the more he went on, the more enemies he made. So he eventually had the whole gang of henchmen working for him. And if If you got in the way of William M. Tweed, he'd send the boys and they'd come and beat you up. At one point, he did this whole land scheme and he built the Manhattan Detention Complex. Now, this thing apparently has been renovated like four times. It's still in downtown Manhattan. And it got the nickname, The Tombs. This was a prison you didn't really want to go to. So here's the ironic part of the whole thing. William M. Tweed was eventually convicted of fraud and misusing the government's resources, all this kind of stuff. And he got sent to his own prison, the one he built. He became an inmate in it. And apparently he was in there for two or three years, and he used every second he was in there to try and get himself out. He he leveraged every friendship, every, every bit of influence on politicians and others, and he eventually got himself out. Now contrast that with the Apostle Paul totally innocent, under house arrest for two years. And instead of trying to use every second to get out of the place, Paul instead does the opposite. He realizes that the Lord has put him in that place for a reason, for a purpose. So there's Paul in his own hired house, chained day and night to a Roman guard, unable to get out, unable to pursue everything that he had been doing so passionately for the last 10, 12 years of his life. He had been traveling all around the Roman Empire, evangelizing, planting churches, doing all those things. And Paul finally realized, he's like, you know what? For whatever reason, God has me in this place. I am chained. I am bound. You know what isn't bound? The Word of God. And he said, you know what? I am so convinced God's going to use even my house arrest. One of the more amazing statements in Scripture is given here in the book of Philippians. Paul wrote Philippians while he's under house arrest in Rome, back to the church in Philippi in Greece. And he says this, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. And then verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. 
After two years, Paul was realizing, you know what? Actually, in a crazy, crazy way, me being stuck under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, is actually allowing the gospel to go forward. And it happened in two specific ways. So one was that the cream of the Roman army, the cream of the crop, was the Praetorian Guard. They were like the secret service of their day. Their job was to protect the emperor. And if war came to Rome, they would make a final last stand and protect the the emperor and the senate at all costs. So these guys were kind of the elite of the elite, the green berets of their day. And they had to do duty with Paul. God arranged it so that the Praetorian Guard, one at a time, would come and be chained to the Apostle Paul for six to seven hours every day. So what do you think the world's foremost evangelist church planter would do for six or seven hours? He would talk to the Roman soldier. Talk about a captive audience. They think Paul's the prisoner, they're the prisoner. (laughs) And God was using the emperor to bring his best boys, chain him up to Paul for six or seven hours a day. That's why Paul can write this amazing statement at the end of the book of Philippians. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. You see, what would have seemed absolutely impossible that the Christian faith could come all the way to Rome and penetrate Caesar, the emperor's household, is happening each and every day while Paul's under house arrest. Now, the second thing that happens is that because Paul was arrested, because he was in chains, all the rest of the Christians in the city kind of were inspired. They said, wow, this is amazing. The world's greatest apostles in chains, and here we are, we're free. And it really seemed to energize and kind of give them boldness. And so in Philippians 1, 12 through 14, Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So that's the second amazing thing. You've got Christians kind of filtering out through the city of Rome. Now, there's actually a third amazing thing that God is doing while Paul is in chains. And if you look in terms of 2,000 years of church history, the third thing might have had the longest, greatest effect of all. And that is that because Paul is there, because he's given an enormous amount of freedom, people can come and go. Paul sits down and he writes letters to all the churches that he had planted over the years. And so we call them the prison letters. He wrote the book of Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and the letter to Philemon. Paul writes these amazing letters. And they have formed a big chunk of the second half of the Bible. A lot of people tell me Philippians is their favorite book. A lot of people love Ephesians because it's kind of the best heart of the gospel kind of thing. Colossians is an amazing book. It appeals to how do, we, how do we love God with all of our heart, soul, and our mind? And then Philemon was a book 
to a runaway slave, a letter to a runaway slave. And it began to change how people thought about slavery. And it eventually, 20 centuries later, would be used in the abolishment of slavery. So what everyone assumed was squashing and confining and binding Paul up, God used in incredible ways. So, how does all of that matter to you and I sitting here this morning in 2022, half a world away? Well, you know what? I think anyone who lives life long enough goes through a period of captivity. Now, for some people, it might be an illness, an injury. It might be a battle with cancer. And they feel for that period of time, man, it was awful. All I was doing was going to the doctor and I was getting treatment and it felt like life slowed down. Felt like I was in jail almost. But I think this is an amazing realization when we look at what God did through the Apostle Paul in those over two years of confinement. God did incredible things. And I have heard the testimony as I get to visit people in hospital, as I get to visit people that have battled injury or illness or sickness or cancer. They say, you know what? Looking back, it's amazing what God did through that. I had incredible conversations with friends, with neighbors, when I was in the hospital, with nurses, doctors. Maybe it's not a a time of sickness that feels like a captivity for you. Maybe it's time away. Maybe you're dating. Maybe it's a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Maybe it's a fiance. Maybe it's your family. And you feel separated. Life has has taken you away from those you love the, the closest. That separation can feel like you're in jail. And I think Paul's example shows us that when our hearts are fully given to Christ, we can simply say, Lord, use me in whatever situation I find myself in then God is going to accomplish great things in us and through us. All right, now all the way through this series, the book of Acts has played out like one big adventure story. We started back in September with the Apostle Paul getting broken, or Apostle Peter, I should say, getting broken out of jail by an angel. We have the miraculous conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius and his whole household. Then we meet Paul. He meets the risen Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus, does a complete 180. Paul goes on three massive missionary journeys. God used him to proclaim the gospel all over the Roman Empire to villages, towns, individuals, and eventually even to rulers and kings. And along the way, people are healed. As we saw last week, 276 people are saved on the ship amidst of a 14-day-long hurricane. Paul is even broken out of jail at one point by an earthquake in the city of Philippi. Now with all that action, with all that story, with all that amazing things, you would expect a big, grand ending. Something that wraps up things with a bow, nice and neat. That is not how the book of Acts ends. This is how it ends, last two verses. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's it. It just ends. And we kind of say, well, hold on. Like, what happened? 
What happened to the church in Rome? Did it, did it grow? Did it kind of explode in growth? We, we don't know about any of the people that have been characters all through the book of Acts. What about Paul's good, good friend Silas, Aristarchus, Timothy, even Luke, the author of Acts? What happens? There's no wrap-up ending. So there's a guy named Paul Tripp. He's a pastor and author. He's written over 20 books. And I think he kind of brilliantly has an insight into why the book of Acts ends like it does. He says, most great stories are great because through the characters, relationships, situations, locations, they march you to an incredible ending. When someone is talking to you about a great movie they just saw or a great book they just read, they'll often say, you will not believe the ending. So, so amazing. Now, God is writing one big, massive story in all of history. And it's the best story precisely because it has no ending. God's big story, the the big overall arching story, starts with creation. And then we see the fall where humanity turns its back on God, rejects God, embraces sin. There's the fall. And then there's redemption. In Christ. And then there's restoration leading all the way up to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, promises that the heavens and earth will come together, everything will be renewed and restored. Creation to recreation, God's giant, big, overarching story. And Paul Tripp says it's the one story you need to know, understand, and give your heart to because it's hopeful, encouraging, and life transforming. And it offers you two things no other story can. First, it offers you a place in the story. A place that was planned long before the story was written. But it also offers you something that's hard for our human brains to wrap around. It offers you a life that never, ever ends. And we're so used to the reality of death that we sadly think of it as just the way life is always going to be. Things die, people die, end of story. But that's not the end of this story. God's amazing story of redemption, which is written for us in the pages of the Bible, is radically different. Because the main character, Jesus, comes into our world and actually defeats death. Defeats sin and death and evil. And because he does, he offers us the one thing that no other story can offer us. Real life now and real life in eternity. Ah, now we begin to see why the book of Acts doesn't wrap it all up. It doesn't tie it up with a nice bow. Because the Holy Spirit of God directed Luke, the author, to end it in such a way that every successive generation of Christian believers gets to add their own chapter. So that means that the last 2,000 years of church history, right up to and including you and I and all of us sitting here in the auditorium, everyone watching online, we are part of the story. As Elephant and Piggy reminded us, we are in a book. And the book of Acts teaches us once and for all that it's God's big story. From creation through the fall, the redemption, and the restoration. God has a chapter for each and every one of us to add. 
And my simple conclusion at the end of this amazing book is be brave, church, and say yes. There is more to be written. Amen?